Not everyone likes to eat. These little chicks today are starving themselves to death, which is kind of ironic, but it's their choice. Since you have to eat to live, you're left with a dilemma. You can choose not to learn how to cook and just eat slop, and you'll stay alive. You can live off terrible cooking, which doesn't taste very good, but you'll somehow manage to survive. But my contention is that if you have to eat anyway, it just seems to me that you're shortchanging yourself if you don't learn how to cook. If you have to eat, why not learn how to eat well? Of course, the downside to eating well is that if you eat too much, you can't get through the door. Well, if that happens, you might ought to cut back some. You can overdo anything, and when you can't get through the door because you're too rotund, you might ought to say, I think I need to start eating a few salads. I'm not saying you should just shovel it in. I'm just saying if you learn how to cook, your stay on earth might be more enjoyable. I learned to cook when I was young, and most of my meals started with something I killed. I have a God-given right to pursue happiness, and happiness to me is killing things, skinning them, plucking them, and then having a good meal. What makes me happy is going out and blowing a duck's head off. As it says in Acts 10.13, King James Version, And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Rise, kill and eat. That's my modus operandi. When I was young, heaven to me was hunting in the woods around our house or fishing on the nearby lakes and rivers. We hunted and threw lines into the Red River for catfish and white perch nearly every day. We didn't have much of a choice. It's where we got our next meal. But when I was in high school, we were forced to move out of the log cabin where I grew up. My Aunt Myrtle sold the farm, so we moved to the nearby town of Dixie, Louisiana. The town was a nice enough place. We lived on Main Street, just a stone's throw from Stroud's General Store, which was adjoined by a one-room post office. The general store and a cotton gin were the only businesses in town. My father hoped the change of environment would help my mother, who had suffered a nervous breakdown and needed numerous trips to Shumpert Hospital in Shreveport, Louisiana, for treatment. Granny was diagnosed as manic-depressive and was twice confined to the Louisiana Mental Institute at Pineville, where she received electric shock therapy, a treatment in vogue at the time. At times, my mother was almost her old self, and Paul would bring her home to be reunited with us. But her condition didn't stabilize until several years later, when it was discovered that lithium could control it. Fortunately, my mother went on to live a productive and venerated life until her death at 95 years old. Granny's illness couldn't have come at a worse time for my family. A short time after we moved to Dixie, Paul fell 18 feet off the floor of a drilling rig and landed on his head. The impact fractured two vertebrae in his back. As Paul collapsed forward, he was bent so severely that it burst his stomach. He also broke his big toe, which slammed into the ground as he doubled up. Telling us about it later, Paul said with a wry smile, I've heard of people getting hit on the head hard enough to break both ankles, but not their big toe. The vertebrae in Paul's back were fused with bone from his hip. His stomach and big toe were repaired but he was in a neck-to-hip heavy plaster of Paris cast for two years. A round opening had been left only over his injured stomach. As always, Paul met the situation in his own laid-back manner. 
Jimmy Frank and Harold were in college at Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge at the time. They were sharing a GI Bill payment of $110 a month and supplementing their income by Harold's work at the Hatcher Hall Cafeteria and Jimmy Frank's work on the LSU Horse and Sheep Unit Experimental Farm. They wanted to drop out of school and come home to work to help support the family, but my daddy insisted they stay in school, remarking dryly over the phone, we'll make it. And we did, but not without hardship. Paul's disability payment from the state was $35 a week. In the late 1950s, that money went a little further than it does today, but not nearly far enough. Somehow, my family coped. With our mother sometimes away in the hospital, Paul was often left on his own with five children under his care. He was almost immobile at first, but within a few months he was able to get around and help with the cooking.